Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and Today is a very special episode. We are doing a wrap up of the Osborne tapes. And with me is Kathleen Allen and Debbie Osborne. Ladies, how are we doing? Great, Jason. All right. Thank you for getting together and talking about the Osborne tapes. For those that may not be aware, Debbie Osborne is who I call the OG, the original person that did law enforcement analysis podcasts in 2008, 2009. And these episodes were about to be lost. And we decided to make them part of the LEA podcast library. And the idea was to put a more modern spin on the episodes. So Kathleen Allen, who is a researcher for LEA Podcast, listened to each episode and researched and gave up-to-dates information on each episode as we've published them week in and week out. So we have now published all the episodes, and I wanted to bring the whole group together, get a perspective from Debbie as she looks back at this time in these podcasts and Kathleen as well as she put this program together over most of 2022. So let's start with you, Debbie. I've had you on the podcast, but wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. My name is Deborah Osborne, but I prefer Debbie. I'm so happy Jason calls me. Mm -hmm. And I worked for the Buffalo Police Department from 1997 to 2007 as the only crime analyst. So I had to work very hard to establish myself and reached out to the profession to help me. And that's why I created the podcast to help other people like me. And then I taught college online until I got a job. I left the police department, was teaching online, and got a job at the Secret Service as an investigative analyst in 2010, and I retired in 2018. Okay, good. And Kathleen, you're up. Hello, my name is Kathleen Allen. I am a research project coordinator with Penn State College of Medicine, and I'm also almost done with my master's in criminal justice and behavior analysis with Penn State. So I am excited to be part of the podcast team and getting to be a researcher and on the opposite end now being interviewed for the first time. So I'm a little nervous. Very good. I am a little disappointed that you didn't say hello there in your introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So you certainly made these episodes your own and that's your greeting there. Each and every episode is hello there. You will do great. Debbie and I have plenty of experience interviewing folks. Don't feel threatened or intimidated by this. I always tell folks that I am not inside edition. I am not trying to get stuff out of them that they don't want to tell. I like to talk about gossip and and rumors, so feel free to do so, but I'm not actually trying to pull something out of you that makes you uncomfortable. In terms of this show, we want to talk about certain episodes that come to mind and play some clips 
talk a little bit about what's changed since 2008, 2009, and then some of the stuff that stayed the same and is still ongoing. And then want to talk a little bit about behind the scenes as some of the growing pains that we have putting this all together behind the scenes that people might not realize how we put these shows together. And then, of course, with every one of my episodes, we'll give the last word to the episode, give a final perspective as we sign off. For you, Debbie, I did want to give you the first crack at just talking about some of the episodes from your perspective now as you look back at your podcast. Thanks, Jason. And I do want to thank you, Aunt Kathleen, so much for all the work you did to put these on the Law Enforcement Analyst podcast. I didn't foresee this happening. So I, as I told you before we started the show, I just happened to decide to listen to a podcast and saw my name, the Osborne tapes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then, of course, I shared it with some people I know, like, look at I'm on, I'm on again. But for me, looking back, listening to the shows, it seems like another life. You know, I retired and I, back then I was in between working in a regular professional job. So I was like, who is this person who's interviewing all these people? <laughs> and I was really actually surprised listening to the episodes because I had forgotten the interviews in the sense of the details of the interviews. And I'd be really curious to hear what you both say about the podcast. But I know at that time, I had lost my son the day I left the police department, November 19th, 2007. So I was working as teaching college online, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And so doing the podcast, too, gave me a way to look to something bigger than myself and even help me get out of a difficult time in my life. So so you might not know that, but that's part of it. Yeah, I did not know that. And certainly sorry to hear that. You mentioned about being surprised about hearing that the podcast was going on. Yeah, that was more on me because we had this idea. I had talked to you, Debbie, when you were on the show analyst talk in 2021 saying hey let's let's put this together let's let's do this and then i think about nine months went by before i think i got around to coordinating with kathleen and getting these on air so there was a pretty big gap almost a year i think between we first talked and when we actually produced these so no um, problem i was happy to be surprised at all. <laughs> no apologies yeah so i guess kathleen from your perspective what were maybe some of the episodes or moments that stick out to you well i think what stood out to me the most and it's more of a a general comment i think um being a student and not knowing some of these big names as i started to update their episode notes and go through their profiles mainly like linkedin and stuff i'm like oh my goodness this person has done so much and consistently then with every episode every time i look somebody up i mean almost everybody seemed to be a, a pioneer in crime intelligence analysis so Kudos to you, Debbie, for for finding these people and getting like a wide range of people on the show who have done, like I said, so much for the field. Thank you. I didn't mention this, but in the beginning for the introductions, but I just realized that we're all essentially from the same part of the planet because Zane and I are both from Pennsylvania and, and Debbie, you've been in Buffalo for how long now? 
Oh, my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're both, we're all three of us are basically from the same general area. So I guess specifically now, I want to start talking about some of the episodes and which ones really come to mind. Certainly this is, this can be difficult because it's like asking you who your favorite pet is or who your favorite child is. You certainly don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but at the same time, we can't necessarily list everybody, you know, all 20 episodes on here. But Debbie, which ones come to mind as you think back? Well, Jason, before we go to that, I just want to congratulate you for winning the Brian Hill Award from the IACA and oh. the award you won from ILEA. So I want to say that I feel honored that I was able to interview Brian Hill and bring his voice and personality to life in the podcast because I know that so many people benefited from a relationship with Brian as somebody who he was someone who really made an effort to help people who came to him. So congratulations to you. Oh, well, um, thank you. And thank you for allowing us to use that clip. And for those that may not know it, for the Brian Hill Memorial Award, I created a video to give a better understanding for those that didn't know Brian and to talk about his career and talk about his contribution to the law enforcement analysis profession. And in that, we were able to use a clip from uh, Debbie's Analyst Corner podcast. I think that was so important for folks to actually hear Brian and to hear him just drop knowledge at the end of that memorial video. So that video, I'm a, I always say I'm a brat about that video and that I've asked that that only be played at the IACA conference during the award ceremony and it's not publicly distributed. So the only way to, to see that is to actually go to the conference and go to the award ceremony. So I highly recommend that to everyone to make your way to the IACA conference to watch that video to get a better idea of what Brian's contributions are. So, all right, so, sorry, keep on going, Deb. So, yeah, so I'm just gonna just, I don't say that I have a favorite because they're mm -hmm. just different types. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's nice to have Jerry Radcliffe and Kim Rosmo come on and explain intelligence-led policing and geographic profiling. I really liked the National Center for the Missing and Exploited Children explaining what they do because I wouldn't have known. So I didn't know the, the three women who I interviewed. And mostly I knew everyone, so at least a little bit. So that was interesting to me. And then Pam Beal, who isn't renowned, but she worked with me at the Buffalo Police Department as a researcher for the University of Buffalo, just talking about the cost of graffiti and how, you know, we're always looking often looking at like these high profile crimes, like violent crimes, and then just the, the other kinds of things that relate to public safety can be really important too. And I liked, of course, hearing from, from analysts like Matt White, Jim Mallard, and then Lisa Palmieri too. So I think there's just, there's a lot of episodes, so I don't think I could be fair to anyone as far as that goes. Yeah, Matthew White, and Lisa Palmieri. I have them circled on my big board. I've been trying to get them scheduled 
for a couple of months now and just have run into several scheduling conflicts, but I do plan on having them on hopefully in 2023. Kathleen, the episode on the missing and exploited children, that was one that really interests you as well. Yeah, the the episode with Mick was definitely one of my favorites. I think, at least in my coursework, we we talk a lot about that organization and what they do. So it was interesting to to hear about its inseparable conception and a little bit behind the scenes from from the three ladies. And I like that that setup. I think that was different and really interesting. Okay. And was there another one that sticks out to you, Kathleen? Yeah, I I think. One of the more recent ones that we that we put out or republished was the one on information sharing. And I think that one was Paul Wormelli and specifically how the national information exchange model switched to the OASIS open and how it's more public facing now. I just really enjoyed on the back end researching all the the updated links and trying to to get the most like recent information out there to our listeners. Good. And then I, I do want to play a clip now because I think it's an interesting story, Debbie, how you met Paul. So this is, again, from your podcast. I want to play it and then get your reaction. For listeners, it's a little story. I met Paul on a flight from, I believe, from Denver to Washington, D.C. in 2003, just before my book, Introduction to Crime Analysis, was coming out. He was sitting two seats away from me in the same row, and I handed a pre-publication flyer to the gentleman I was chatting with next to me. A few minutes later, Paul said that he had written a book on crime analysis in the 1970s. (laughs) And later I discovered, in further discussions with him, that he had played a key role in administering the grant, the funding that started the first crime analysis units in our country. So that's quite serendipitous. Yes, and then he did say it wasn't really a book, and it was just wonderful, and that's how my life has been, though, the serendipity, meeting people, just being close to Mercyhurst College, where Robert Heibel is. I actually became friends with Mark Evans, who was interviewed in one of the podcasts and helped him bring analysts to North America, but, you know, all these different ways of meeting people, so, you know, it is so important for analysts to go out in the world and you know, you wouldn't know it, but I am actually shy. I actually cried at my first jo- first job interview when I was young. So I am not I am not necessarily someone with imposter syndrome, but I'm also not naturally outgoing. So so you don't have to be outgoing to talk to people on planes and meet interesting people. You never know who you might meet. Yeah, I've often said this on the show that I am really glad that they do not record interviews. Because I would be so mortified to watch my first couple of interviews as a 20-something trying to woo the crowd and to get my first law enforcement analysis job. But another comment I want to make is when we were... Trying to put a name on this, we went through several iterations on what we were going to call Kathleen's version. And we we settled on uh, Osborne tapes, which obviously these aren't actual tapes, but that's a perfect name for these because you still do see, you hear the the background noise in a way that it seems very nostalgic and and older so i i like that concept i like the fact that when you it's as if we are pushing play on a cassette tape 
and listening to that and i can you could just hear that and it just gives a little bit authenticity to the recording well let me just comment that it's part of it it's due to that i am not a technology person and that mm -hmm. and you know i i used i call it a show because it was on an internet show <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's it's kind well, of funny yeah this is 0809 so that so much easier now with zoom and skype and and all these platforms now that allow you to do video conferencing it's it's way easier now than it was back then it was on the telephone call so you were limited by the phone yeah. reception <laughs> yeah so i do want to play another clip you mentioned matthew white and he had an interesting perspective that i've heard over the years i don't know how confident analysts are to actually take him up on this offer but i did want to get both of your perspectives on what matt had to say in this particular clip of the episode one of the great things to do is just stop doing everything for a day and when because if you get in a position where you've been doing a lot of stuff over the years that's collected you'd be surprised if you cut everything off one day how few people scream and you realize that two-thirds of that was stuff that nobody's using anymore so you know it's you got to have support from the top to be able to do that and make sure that you know you're not going to get creamed you got to be ready to respond when people say hey i need that today you know where is it? it's usually out but that's something that, that that is a really simple thing to do that really opens your eyes sometimes if your unit's been kind of going along the same way for a while so yeah kathleen i certainly understand that you're just starting out but i just wanted to get your perspective this idea of like okay i'm just going to stop doing what i do to see if anybody notices <laughs> Yeah, I think a way you would have to take that idea to your boss, kind of reframing that idea. My team last year read a book to keep up morale. We read the book, Sacred Cows. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it, but trying to get rid of ineffective things that you're doing that take up your time that, you know, may be there just because that's what you've always done. So I can definitely respect that idea. And I, I definitely think it's interesting and could be very effective. What do you think, Debbie? I think that, you, you know, being an analyst who was trying to produce a lot of things, not being sure if anyone's looking at them, this is, to me, this is an effective way. And I think, I don't know what, I'm sure it's like this still where people are producing things because that's what they've always done. And so just like what Kathleen was saying, sometimes what we've always done isn't really, it's a waste of time. And I do believe in working smarter, not harder. So finding out what, what the decision makers want, which is, Related to, I believe, what Jerry Radcliffe was saying and somebody else about decision makers. Oh, Lisa Palmieri. You know how important it is to produce things that actually make are of value to take action to improve public safety, not just to do it because we've always been doing it. To me, I just add, what is the product that we're discussing here? Because I've always been of the opinion that if you are creating a report in which you're just collating the report. There's not any analysis with it. You're just pulling numbers. You're just pulling data and pushing it out. There's just that process of calculating. If you're doing that repeatedly, that needs to be automated. That should not be an analyst function to just bring data into Excel, make pretty graphs and push them out. And I think what happens is analysts get stuck in that process. They've created it once and now executives or decision makers and users want this 
time and time again, and it's really can bog down an analyst doing their job by having to do all of these repeated mundane reports. And, and like you said, it's not analysis. So mm-hmm. I, I'm all for using the analyst to use to use their critical thinking and really add value, mm-hmm. not just be somebody who can make reports on a computer. Yeah. I, I think another thing that I liked about Matt White's episode is his talking about the analyst has to be comfortable working with any member of the police department, whether it is a first year officer or whether it's the police chief and that the the analyst has to have that range to be able to work with anybody in the police department and not just be hamstrung by going through chain of command. I think that was an interesting perspective from his point of view. Lisa said that too, though. She said, how many layers are you from the decision maker? You know, like Mm -hmm. if you can't go to the top person, but I also, like you're saying, I also believe too, you should be able to be with the patrol officer and the top of the chain. So you have to be flexible and you have to have some confidence. You have to not be like how I was when I was really young. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've all been there. We all had our growing pains. So so (laughs) stuff that you have to look forward to, Kathleen. (laughs) Be brave. Be brave, Kathleen. All right. This next clip that I want to play is from Jim Mallard, and it's talking about training and support. For for police managers, really recognizing that crime analysis is a long-term investment, not only in, in hardware and software, but also in training and support. It's it's critical for a successful crime analysis unit to have the upper-level support. When an analyst comes to you and says, hey, I need to go to this conference, they're not saying that because they want to go golfing. They're saying it because mm-hmm. there are other analysts out there that they need to be in constant, constant, constant communication with. And sometimes you can't necessarily do that through email. Some of the some of the the best ideas I've ever heard were were over a frothy bev- beverage at a local watering hole. <laughs> so. Yeah. So yeah, Kathleen. Which I mean, Debbie. What's your reaction to that? Well, I'd like to know Kathleen's first. What do you oh, think, right. Kathleen? Yeah. yeah. I <laughs> I can definitely understand where he's coming from. I I liked that clip, and I know he in his episode he talks a lot about the promotion of meaningful analysis work, and I think you know getting to to sit down one-on-one with people and and talk to them, you know, about more than just what can be said in an email is is one of the best ways to encourage, you know, coworkers and and people who might feel like they're alone in the field. Yes, I think there's two aspects to that. There's that training that you need, you know, because I do think he talks about the software issue that if you don't get ongoing training, you're not going to be able to use it. And and that then speaks to the people because I know Jason, you're I think you're pretty good at Excel. Like how many people have you helped? And I didn't, I was very much a generalist. I didn't even have computer skills when I started. So I really, really depended on people. And luckily, as the only analyst, I got to go to a lot of conferences and training because there was grant money to send me places. And without all those people, well, we would not be talking today because I would not be making podcasts. (laughs) So I met them, a lot of them out in the world. So I think it's so valuable. I was just thinking about this concept the other day in my own my current role in that I have left law enforcement and I work for Vanderbilt Medical Center and I've been with them for over 11 years now and it's 
rare that I've gone to training. I went to training where I traveled really, really only twice. And that to me was the only reason for that was that we got a new software. And so we think of, are you got a records management system or a CAD? And then they sent me to training to learn that new software. So this concept that analysts have in which they have opportunity to go to annual training, even if it's local training where you're not staying overnight, not traveling on a airplane, that's not consistent throughout the workplace. It's, it's a, I think it's a very rare situation that analysts are in that it's there's opportunity every year because of grants because of different funding for analysts to go to training so it's it's out there and you really should take advantage of those opportunities to learn in advance well jason but i'd like to say well too sometimes i know it's recommended that people even spend their own money which i did sometimes but now that people are in bigger analytical units like in where i was one analyst in buffalo now there's probably over 20 for the county that covers the city too and they're not going to send everyone to a conference so i think there's like this double-edged sword you know you get the expansion of the profession then you get fewer people able to go to the conferences i would think that might be an unintended con consequence of the growth of the profession. It's definitely not just you, Jason, and maybe because I also work for a hospital system that in order to get access or the ability to go to any sort of training or conference, you have to apply for those like little grants. And that's something my team has gotten pretty good at. But like you said, you know, it's something that's almost unique to the to the field is that there's these annual trainings that other fields and professions don't have access to. And helpful people. I have never, especially the IICA, you know, I have never met such helpful people in my life. It's just, they're just wonderful and doing things for free to help each other. It's just amazing. Yeah. I would like to add though, and this is something we've brought up time and time and again, you know, these conferences, these associations, if you volunteer with these associations there is a discount for going to the conference and if you certain positions they'll they'll pay your entire way and most police departments if you can get it paid for they'll give you the time where you don't have to take time off pto vacation if it's if it's for for the position so if you can get it paid for that's helpful as well there's plenty of opportunity to do that Hi, this is Tony Berger. I want to encourage each and every one of you to refuse to be offended. We're living in a, a world right now where everybody's talking and divided on different issues, and we are on social media, and what happens invariably is that somebody says or types something that irks us, makes us mad. And I just want to encourage you to do not take offense to what other people say. It will only make a, a difference in your life for the better, and sniping back and forth at people serves no purpose. You didn't do the dishes? Well, no, I was busy doing other chores, but my completed chores is up five in the last seven days.
Yeah, but you're still down 13 over the last 28 days. Well, I see your shopping purchases is up 20% this month. My spending is still down year to date. In fact, my black shoe purchases are half of what they were this time last year. Well, thank goodness last year wasn't a normal year. Plus, I bought you new underwear, so your clothes purchases is up 40% this month compared to last month. Oh, wait. There were no clothes purchases the previous month, Miss Perfect. I didn't know you had the ability to divide by zero. You should be happy. Your temperature-led policing program has worked great in this house. I have not touched your precious thermostat in the last six months. Millions of homes in the U.S. are impacted by people wanting to be comfortable in their homes. Temperature-led policing, control the temperature, control the cost. Before we move off of Jim Mallard's episode, I do want to talk about an aspect of his episode with the both of you. And I think the concept is he talks about software. And I think in a way, analysts are tied too much to software. And I, I think about David Karen's episode when I interviewed him, he was a CIA analyst for, for many years. And with the CIA as an analyst, he had one role was to, he had one section of the world and he was to read as much as he possibly could and be the subject matter expert on that particular area of the country. And whenever he was called up, that area of the country was in question, he was the subject matter expert. It was required that he know and be ready to brief everyone on that particular topic. And certainly that is a form of analysis, right? And I think where, where law enforcement analysts are today, because there's so much data and there's so many tools now, analysts are not necessarily subject matter experts on a particular idea they are ones that run the tool. So they're the ones that run the mapping tool. They're the ones that run the I2 chart. They're the ones that run the, the social networking tool, whatever you have there for the police department. And I think what has gotten lost is this idea of analysts really knowing the, the data beyond the data when what i mean by that is analysts do a good job of knowing what's in databases but i'm not sure they really know truly about the particular crimes or the particular drugs or the particular areas beyond the data in their jurisdiction so i that concept there about being tied too much to the software i like to get both of your perspectives on that well, I'll just say I wasn't because I'm not good at that software. <laughs> <laughs> so also I came from a different field totally. I didn't have a, at the time I had half a master's degree and I had no criminal justice background. So I was curious about the whole, like, how do we know what we know? So for the past 20 years, I've been working on this simple book idea about elements of crime patterns, like more like what Jim Mailer talks about copper thefts and catalytic converter thefts, but how many ways that's expressed in a narrative. And yes, you could have a checkbox and you you can use software 
databases to find things, but you're going to miss a lot if you don't understand what you're looking for because it won't be there. So, I mean, there's more to that idea than I can say in the show, but it's it's like a way of thinking. And I believe David is pretty much talks about critical thinking, but it's not just critical thinking, it's creative thinking. It's it's multidisciplinary thinking. And I think we need more of that. What about you, Kathleen? Yeah, there's definitely something to say about becoming a, a subject matter expert about, you know, things going on in your area. And like we said earlier about getting rid of ineffective practices, there may not be time to spend on researching topics in your area and getting to show kind of your sense of individuality as a as an analyst um, and and looking into things that you're interested in or that you may want to be a subject matter expert on. So relying heavily on tools and, and technology may be one of those ineffective practices and, and is probably a, an opportunity for growth. Greg Seville talks about that. I In the interview, I took a class from him where I went in the community to talk to people to actually see the environment. And I think that people at the local level can do that. And then also working at the federal level, like some people are better at like investigations with money laundering, some are better in cybercrime. You know, to become a subject matter expert is possible. You just have to go with what you like. Just like in policing, there were people, police officers who like to investigate stolen vehicles more than some robberies. So I do think you could develop your passion. There's really no reason you can't. You just have to be able to do other things too. Yeah. All right, the next clip I wanna play is you mentioned him before is Jerry Ratcliffe. And Jerry and I got a chance to see each other at the Talia conference in August of 2022 in Opryland in Nashville. I often talk that I am not a good writer and that these podcasts are basically my way of writing a novel without actually writing. And I get to, each episode is a chapter in my novel that I'm not writing. But I got his reaction to the conference and I asked him specifically about his episode when he was on your podcast, Debbie, and that what he had said earlier at the Talia conference mirrored what he had said back when he was on your episode. So I wanted to get his reaction. So take a listen to what he had to say. One last question. So recently on my podcast, Debbie Osborne gave me permission to re-release her podcast from 2008-2009. And God, so, I was like nine years old. Yes. And so <laughs> we, we are calling them the Osborne tapes. And so I re-released yours this past Wednesday and took a listen to it. And it was fascinating and very relevant, but that made it sad. And the reason it made it sad is because you talked about having a hard time defining intelligence-led policing, the struggle of analysts to influence decision makers, the idea of in the United States you have a separate function of intel analyst to crime analyst, and then the, how politicized law enforcement here is in the United States with sheriffs being unelected officials. And your quote earlier about crime analyst saying the what and intelligence analyst doing the why that was actually in that as well. So Isn't it great that nothing's changed in over a decade? <laughs> there we go. Uh, what, a, what a fantastic, it's lovely to be had this gentle reminder what a fantastic influence I've had on the field. Thank you so much for, for this. It's really cheering me up. Uh, great. Yeah. So that's why I thought, oh, this is 
very relevant and good for my podcast, but very sad for the profession. Yeah, I mean, it shows how embedded some of these ideas are, and it shows what a challenge some of these ideas are to move forward. And I think we have to start looking at why that's the case. This this gulf between analysts and intelligence people is something that's largely not the case overseas. So why? what is it about here in the United States that makes us different in that regard? But yeah, isn't that great to know I've had zero impact on the field in 14, 13, 14 years. Thanks for that cheery reminder. Cheers, good on you. Just added 13 or 14 years to my life with no value. Marvelous. Thanks, Jason. Well, I am certainly sorry to make you feel sad. So we'll have to go get some cheery drinks. Cheery bastard. We'll have to go get some drinks now. So, But thank you, Jerry, for your time. All right. So that, as I said, that turned out really well, the reaction and what happened. But what's your reaction, Debbie, on that? Well, Jerry has such a great sense of humor. But, you know, once I was working somewhere with the Secret Service and I ran into Jerry in the hallway randomly in D.C., so it was funny. But, Jerry, I think it's really is unfortunately not going to change due to the fragmentation of U.S. policing. And I think that's, too, why intelligence analysis is separate from crime analysis in policing here, because really federal agencies mostly are doing investigations, not doing crime prevention, and they're not at the ground, except for the types of cases they're working, particularly, you know, I mean, prevention, yes, for anti-terrorism, but not so much for anything else. And I think that I feel depressed about it all. And then William Tafoya said something about the spread of um, misinformation, and I just see that with social media, with people selecting the, only the news they like. And I, I just don't know that I feel too optimistic too. And I think I feel a little bit the way Jerry feels because you hear me saying, here's my podcast for the development of crime and intelligence analysis and policing. Like I could change the world. I don't know why I was thinking that, but but I know Jerry's put a lot more into doing that too. And it, and it can be depressing, but I also, am an optimistic person, so I'm waiting for something to shift. I don't know what it'll be. Well, one of the ideas that I have regarding this is it. I don't believe we're going to see a seismic shift until we have more analysts that work their way up to be part of police chief's executive group. Until you have that ladder from analyst to director, I don't believe you're going to see much of a change. When that happens, when you have more folks climbing up to the executive board, you're going to get that perspective. You're going to see more of an influx into people seeing like, oh, this is the way that I can work my way up. And I think that is going to put a, a column, a spine, if you will, to this profession. And I think, unfortunately, one of the reasons why it has not happened yet is because of the private sector. The private sector, and I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit throwing stones in a glass house when I say this, because I, I <laughs> no longer in the law enforcement, I didn't do what I'm about to say, but the fact that you can go to the private sector and earn more money, do the same role, and that's where people are funneling out of. And we really need folks to stay within the department and work their way up 
to that executive level, I think, to get the seismic shift that we're all hoping for. I happen to think it's more likely to be education of the public in general, because the reason I was so passionate about this profession is that I came into it thinking police were doing something a lot more than they're doing. Like, I thought it was better. And I am a mother and a grandmother. I was a grandmother even when I started it. I just turned 41 back then. I was a person who didn't know what was going on. And I was horrified of the not using the resource of information the way we could to make things better. So I don't know that even if you had leaders, Jason, in different agencies, you still have how many police agencies? You, it's mm-hmm. just going to be a, a long haul. What does Kathleen think? Because she's yeah, was, a young, I, young, hopeful person over there. Yeah, I was like, uh, cheer us. this. I was just going to bring <laughs> Kathleen in here to hopefully cheer up this conversation. Yeah. I will do my best. I think we are in an information age where, like Debbie said, the public has a little more of a role to play in influencing how changes happen and and how different policies and practices come into play. So I think what we're doing and putting, you know, public facing stuff out there about encouraging change, I think I personally think it makes a difference and, and hopefully we can and cheer up Jerry Radcliffe because he has some <laughs> for the field. <laughs> so this gets me back then to what I said earlier, which was analysts being subject matter experts and really have an understanding of police issues. Because if it is the the influence of society that we need to happen, then analysts need to be out there in the public, doing interviews on TV, on podcasts, writing articles that majority of society is reading. I always think when you watch one of these 24-hour news shows, no matter what the topic of the day is, whether it's somebody where they're dealing with foreign relations, whether they're dealing with a bombing, whether they're dealing with a shark attack, whatever it is, they will bring somebody in who's the expert for that particular topic. And they will talk about the who, what, when, why, what's next type thing. And they that subject matter experts is dropping knowledge on the particular topic. In that regard, then the, the way to influence society is to know the, the issue. And it's not going to be by knowing the data or knowing how to use the tool because that'll go right over the head of most people in society. It's going to be a clear understanding of the issues and being able to articulate solutions. Jason, I also think though, we just need to be more mainstream. Like maybe there needs to be like articles about what what isn't happening. It, it can't be just, we don't, we're the only ones who know. And that's the problem because if you're working in an agency, you can't say what you know is not happening because you won't have a job. So I'm, I have been working on like also like a memoir that would be more mainstream, like that people would actually understand, but I don't know if I'll ever finish it, but that it would be a book that other, everyone would read if, who would read a memoir. And and so you have to make it broader, but we're not going to solve that today. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just that it needs to be like, people actually know that it's not happening. But when you do that, then the politicians don't like it. Oh, 
you know, you, you know, to get it to jump to the next level. I think what Kathleen's saying though is important. I think the the newer generation, everyone knows what information could do. Who's the people who are very young? That's been they were born with, you know, computers. <laughs> so <laughs> so they'll know, and then maybe maybe it'll change then. But I think there has to be an awareness that isn't here. It's like we're it's like we're asleep in a way. No matter how much we're trying to make podcasts and make things broadly known it's still that's why it's great you have my podcast on because it was just on a bunch on a on a website that only nobody could find you know at least mm-hmm. now people could listen to this all in one place one of the things that with jerry's clip is you know what has stayed the same and that was one of the things that i think has been interesting in this process is listening to these episodes that are over 10 years old and some of the issues that were brought up in your podcast debbie are still relevant today so i guess i'll start with kathleen kathleen i just is is there some that stick out of like what has stayed the same that maybe surprised you or stands out yeah i remember one of the first episodes was pamela beale and i when i went to update the episode notes and you know the resource links that were talked about i was surprised to find that there wasn't a lot more research done on graffiti and some of the the references that were you know cited during the original episode couldn't be updated and I thought it was interesting that maybe there was a lack of of grant funding toward that topic. I'm not sure what happened there, but I just I thought that was interesting. And and maybe I I didn't dig quite deep enough. But maybe Jason or Debbie can you can expand on that a little bit. But I thought that was interesting that I didn't find anything to update. I think that there were, was a lot of grant money for community policing and problem oriented policing back when I was working, and I'm not sure what happened because I, I left local level policing in 2007. Jason, do you know? <laughs> well, I I think it's how cities have reacted to the graffiti problem. I remember, and this is going to be very anecdotal, and but I think it, it fits the point that I, I'm trying to make is when I was at Cincinnati Police Department, there was an officer there that did a lot of work to identify this serial graffiti person had basically put together a a case where he could identify and connect all the graffiti that this person had done and put a lot of time and effort into building the case and they brought it to court and of all that work that he did and was able all the damage or whatever you want to call it throughout the city i think at the end of the day the the person got like basically a slap on the wrist in terms of a punishment and so it's i i think basically society is is deemed it not as big a deal like i don't think they want to throw people that are are graffiti artists in the same prison as people that are more violent criminals. And I think that the solution has just been, we're just going to clean up areas that we want cleaned up and we're going to leave graffiti for areas where maybe people don't mind that it's there. And that gets into broken windows theory, but I think that it's the react. I think it's society's reaction to graffiti is has led to 
to the answer to your question, Kathleen. And the theories of the day kind of like there's money for something for a number of years and then that goes away. You know, there seems to be like right now a data-driven policing. I mean, it just depends on what the police executives are being are focusing on at, during a period of time, it seems to me, but I don't know. And Debbie, was is there something that comes to mind for you that stuff that has basically stayed the same since 2008, 2009? Well, because I don't know. I'm not, I haven't worked mm-hmm. at the local level, but I do think just like what we were talking about, I think the United States policing is a barrier to the development of the, the layers of levels, the amount of agencies itself and the politi- political nature of policing can be an obstacle and it hasn't changed. So except there, there is probably more cooperation to some degree, but I don't really know. Okay. Hmm. All right. And then back to you, Kathleen, what about some changes? It's something that just maybe seemed outdated now, which is a good thing. I mean, it's hard to to wrap this up in, in just a couple sentences because, I mean, it has been 10 years and I think the major major changes come from what has developed through technology and advancements. And, you know, as I've listened to these episodes and there's programs that have come and gone, but it seems pretty consistent that, you know, technology just keeps advancing and advancing. And like we said earlier, can't get can't get stuck in that. And there's more to it than just pushing buttons and running reports and, and being the one to to facilitate, you know, these programs running, but also getting out in the community and, and knowing knowing your area. Yeah. Hmm. I, I would say that I don't know how much data cleaning is going on today. I know that was a big part of analysis work back when Debbie and I were analysts, is this idea of having to clean data before we could analyze the data. And I'm not sure how much that's going on today. I I think there has been a big shift into trying trying to get the data right at data entry level. And I think there has been uh, steps towards trying to prevent the idea of garbage in, garbage out. And certainly not perfect, but I think there has been more of an effort to for the quality of data that are in our databases. As far as technology goes, I I think that back when I left the Buffalo Police Department, and so it was just two years after that I did the podcast, we didn't have the social media analysts working on social media, cell phone tower analysis as much, the people who are using DNA ancestry databases to clear cold cases. There's a lot of new analyst roles Mm. are time consuming and technology based. So I see that even more open source information, probably there's just an expansion of what analysts do. And I do sometimes fear that that just makes the analyst more a technology person, too. Not that that's so bad because everybody wants a job. Mm-hmm. Right, Kathleen? Right, Kathleen? You, want, you want to work as an analyst? You'll do it. You know, you'll do it because it's a wonderful profession. But that's new and it's interesting, too. So I think that's new. And I I also think looking at the ISCA website, how much training is being offered that you could do it right in your house. (laughs) You know, there's a lot more. There's more options or even Jason making the podcast more information out there. Maybe not enough, but 
this mm -hmm. podcast, there's those are changes, the awareness of the profession, the training, education, different programs. All right. So I do want to, as we're finishing up here, I did want to take time and talk a little bit about behind the scenes, because there are certainly times when you putting this together and the, obviously the finished product is way more polished than maybe what the original is and maybe the audience doesn't fully understand all what goes into trying to put these podcasts together but debbie is there a particular interview that sticks out to you the interview turned out well maybe but in terms of the, the actual recording or the actual process it was it was kind of an interesting perspective not a particular interview but there was the issue too because you know we were calling whoever i was interviewing they were calling in one number so the reception mm -hmm. might be bad and mm -hmm. staticky but there was a, a funny scenario so i moved into my sister's house and i was upstairs and i had the different rooms but i didn't have a kitchen but i was not wanting to be disturbed so i'd have a sign on my door and sometimes you would hear a dog bark that was my sister's dog but I, they were joking, I don't know if any of you saw Seinfeld, where Kramer has the Merv Griffin show set in his house, his apartment, and they would say I was having the Merv Griffin show, you know, in my upstairs. But it was, I think that everybody, you know, sometimes it was hard to, you know, just like with this, like, when do you speak and interrupt someone? When do, you know, there's always those logistics, but all in all, I don't think that there was any problem having an interview. It was more like the dog barking, the not getting interrupted, the reception. The challenge is, I had mentioned before that not being inside edition. So while there may be interesting topics, I don't necessarily push the analyst either, even though it would be a more interesting podcast if they're going to talk about stuff that's maybe controversial or spicy, if you will. You know, there, we have that call-in segment of shit you heard here in the office. And, you know, a lot of folks will tell me one's off air, but they won't tell me one's on air type of thing. And so there's there's certainly that aspect of it. And I, I think that has been a challenge for me is I don't necessarily try to spice up the interview. I, I've talked about what's that show with the briefcases, Deal or No Deal, and ha Howie Mandel hosted that show. Now that that show should really be about each each game should be about three minutes, but they <laughs> they string it out and make it a, made it a thirty minute episode to really build the drama. And one of two things happened in almost every episode of that. One is either the contestant was a character and was very animated or Howie Mandel was very animated. And, but one of them was trying to make the episode more entertaining. And I have tried to stay away from that in a way that I really am interviewing the analyst and to get his or her perspective and try to identify who they are and you know, it's biographical and trying to identify how they got to where they are and where they're going. And so I've, I have been more of the ask a question and then 
just seeing what the reaction was and instead of trying to make it more interesting. So uh, Kathleen, what was it like for you? I think my favorite I guess behind this aspect of, of putting this together would be, I didn't start doing this until I guess halfway through, but reaching out to to these individuals that you interviewed, Debbie, on LinkedIn, or I've emailed a few just to say, hey, we're re-releasing this, watch out for it. But also you talked about this in the episode. Do you have any updates? Or, you know, you have a, you published a book in 2008. Is there anything else that you'd like me to to put in the episode notes? And And I got some pretty great responses and I really enjoyed getting to personally connect. So thank you for the opportunity. But I I enjoyed getting to my back end research and and figure out, you know, what's changed also in in the professional lives of these individuals. Yeah, that's that is great that you were able to do that. And then you got the got a response because some of these folks are retired, no longer in their profession. And but it's it is great to get their perspectives as well as they look back at the, 2008-2009 time. All right. Well, I, I do want to finish this interview up. And certainly, like I always do, I give my words to the world segment. And this is where I give the guests the last word. And so I think I'm going to start with Kathleen and go to Debbie. So Kathleen, as you were trying to put a bow on this project, what are your final words? I would say the the main thing I would encourage is networking. Like like we said earlier in the show, you never know where people are going to end up and what they're going to accomplish. And as a student, especially, people are always willing to talk to a student. So I would encourage anybody who's you know training or a student just to to make connections and utilize your resources and the and the network around you and keep keep in contact with people because the wealth of knowledge that they have can can literally change the trajectory of your field or your career. Yeah, good. And Debbie, you actually are are unique in the fact that you are one of the few people that have been on my podcast more than once. And I think you're going to be the first person to actually give two words to the world. So as you again trying to put a bow on this task what are your words to the world well thankfully i can't remember my first words to the world but <laughs> i'm going to actually steal some advice from michael jackson who gave an update and your wrap up he was i guess he's the chair of the iaca mentoring program is to be curious and courageous and i would add be creative so there's people listening who we have ideas but they're like hesitant. I would say I did the podcast. I didn't know where it would go. I would have no idea that it would be reappearing and like reincarnated in 2022 by a stranger, Kathleen. So I would just say, be curious, be, be courageous, be creative. And certainly to our audience, I highly recommend if you have not listened to the Osborne tapes, please do so. I put the links to the episode in the show notes. Just as I do end every episode, we've given them just enough to talk bad about us later. But I do appreciate you all. Thank you so much. And you all be safe. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. 
Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.